Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast, powered by Kasoon Carr. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel Lowe. Daniel is a triple qualified private equity lawyer based in Singapore. Daniel has previously worked as an in-house counsel at a private equity firm in Hong Kong and as a corporate associate at an international law firm in Canada. He's qualified in Canada, Alberta and Ontario, England and Wales and the British Virgin Islands. Daniel has become well-known in the legal space for providing expert insights into how associates can internationalize their legal careers. So, a very big welcome, Daniel. Hi, Rob. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. And before we go through all the amazing work that you're doing, we do have a customary icebreaker question on the Legally Speaking podcast that we ask all of our guests, and it's with regards to the hit series Suits. So, on the scale of <laughs> 1 to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit series Suits in terms of its reality on the scale of 1 to 10? <laughs> Right. I think in reality wise, I think it's a, probably a four, but I, I'm going to tell you why though. It's because I think it gets the four points from the way they treat associates. I think um, the way Lewis Litt and, and all of them kind of treat uh, these associates and in the bullpen is indicative of how you would be treated at a corporate firm. There is that kind of back and forth and uh, there's a hierarchy there. So I think that part is quite accurate. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of kind of reality there, as you say, particularly in certain law firms um, across the globe. And we perhaps talk a little bit more about following our discussion. But as I mentioned, we always like to start at the beginning with all of our guests. So tell us a bit about your family background and your your upbringing. Yeah, sure. Originally, I was born in Hong Kong and I moved to immigrate to Canada when I was uh, around five years old. I settled in Toronto in Canada. And so that I'm basically Canadian uh, through and through. Went to university at the University of Toronto there, and basically from then on, kind of built my life around Canada. But also, obviously, like it recently, as you can tell, moved to Hong Kong and currently in Singapore. So a bit of a, you know, I've been all over kind of thing. Good stuff. Well, we love a good international background. And so did you always want to be a lawyer? Or if you didn't want to be a lawyer, what did you want to be? Yeah. So basically, as a, you know, a child of immigrants, Asian immigrants, I was given three choices. <laughs> One, doctor, accountant, or lawyer. So my maths game is not strong. So obviously, I kind of uh, lean towards the law game. And that was kind of what started me off with the exploring law career. Uh, it's that my parents told me it was a stable career. You know, it's respectable, especially, you know, in Hong Kong. It used to be a British colony. So, you know, law, especially an English law degree or an English qualification is quite reputable. But I think as I kind of developed uh, an understanding of what the legal practice is, I realized that it's, it's a fantastic skill set to have uh, in terms of, you know, interpreting the law, but also digesting the law and making it into kind of commercial legal advice. I mean, I think that's very valuable in this day and age, especially with regulations everywhere. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so what was your main sort of motivations for internationalizing your, your legal career? As you mentioned, you, you've, you've had a sort of, you know, very international profile. So tell us about your motivations for that. Yeah. So I think my motivation came from my undergraduate degree uh, at the University of Toronto, where I studied politics. And I took a lot of courses on globalization and how you know, the state of the world is right now. And the summary there was that the world is shrinking. Everyone is becoming more interconnected. And going forward in the next few decades, whatever role that we do, it's going to be more international. There's going to be more of an international perspective and more of an international scope. 
So for me, I've always known that if I were going to pursue a legal career, it would have to be international in scope. That's how you would thrive in the coming years. And that was my motivation, I guess, to eventually, you know, being a Canadian lawyer, write my QLTS and kind of convert, become an English solicitor, and then eventually the BVI qualification as well. For me, that was a no-brainer. I had to uh, internationalize. Yeah. And, and so, you know, let's break it down. You've worked in Canada, Hong Kong, and now Singapore. So how did you choose which countries you wanted to work in? And how did you actually go about getting work in those places as well? So for me, because I'm originally from Hong Kong, I've always had an affinity about Hong Kong and, you know, eventually going back and at least practicing a few years, seeing how it is. Coming up, I've realized that if you look around the world, there are only a few spots that are in high growth mode. China, I think for a period of time, they were going double digits in GDP growth, right? You look at South America as well, uh, growing substantially. So for me, I was thinking, how do I leverage my personal skills, so say my language skills or my interests, into a growth area, uh, growth countries? So naturally for me, it was Asia. So I guess coming to Hong Kong was a natural kind of progression in that I, I spoke the language, I spoke Cantonese. I didn't speak Mandarin, uh, but I was learning it at the time. And uh, eventually now in Singapore as well, English is the, the main language here, but they also speak Cantonese and Mandarin. But Would you go so far to say as Mandarin is now essential just in, in terms of being out there or, or not so much just yet? I think in Hong Kong, it's becoming essential. Prior to, you know, like maybe 10 years back, Cantonese was all you needed. But now uh, a lot of law firms and also in-house roles are asking for trilingual English, Cantonese and Mandarin. And that's fluency in reading, writing, speaking. That is the gold standard. <laughs> um, but I would say that Singapore is not there yet. Singapore is still English first with a Mandarin as a plus. Yeah. OK. And you must have had quite a few challenges um, along the way with you know, the, the various jurisdictions you, you, you've operated in. What have been some of those biggest challenges becoming qualified in, in each jurisdiction? Yeah. So when I arrived in Hong Kong, there was no requirement for me to become Hong Kong qualified. And same thing with Singapore. There's no need for me to become Singapore qualified. Just by the virtue of the fact that in in-house in Hong Kong, they only required me to be common law qualified. So at the time, I had my England and Wales and my Canadian qualifications. And in Singapore, I was called to BVI uh, because I was working for an uh, offshore firm. But uh, I think for me, I think relatable wise is um, learning the BVI and learning Cayman Islands law when I had no familiarity with it. Um, that was quite difficult, uh, learning both sets of laws uh, and also how it applied to, say, investment funds in, in corporate law. Steep learning curve I, with any uh, new jurisdiction. You're going to have to learn how they kind of draft laws, but like, do they call it ordinances or, or do they call it acts, right? But the fact is that most of these jurisdictions are based on UK system. So I think it's not as hard uh, in that sense. But if you say go to a country that relies on civil code, say Brazil and whatnot, uh, that will be much more difficult. Yeah, it's great advice that because you do need to kind of take into consideration each individual jurisdiction and, and, and really research and what needs to be done. And that leads quite nicely on to your, your recent interview through the Global Lawyers Connect, where I, I know we're big fans of Gordon Chung. I'm actually an international advisor to the Global Lawyers Connect. I think it's a great platform and what they're doing is fantastic. And I think you speak around the importance of local networking. So tell us more about that and why it's so important, particularly looking at it from a sort of internationalizing your career perspective. Yeah, so I can actually bring it back to my own uh, internationalizing story. When I first moved to Hong Kong from Canada, 
despite the fact that I had obviously some family in Hong Kong, but I generally knew no one. So networking was very key for me. And I spent, I think, the first month uh, sleeping on my grandmother's floor because uh, mm-hmm. I had no place of my own. <laughs> and basically every day I would line up coffees. I would line up chats with, uh, say, university alumni that I kind of found through network brochure and whatnot, um, recruiters, but also on LinkedIn, I reached out to lawyers that had maybe Canadian background or uh, you know American background. But generally, I try to pack as many meetings as I can, if anything, just to make them aware that I am here, but also for me to kind of start building the network locally. When you're in Asia, you realize that everyone is connected here, even though you're in Hong Kong and Singapore, but everyone knows eventually everyone. It's a small market, which is quite interesting because there's multiple countries here in Southeast Asia, right? But I think the legal community is quite small. So it's really good to kind of start building that locally, whatever jurisdiction you want to get into, and it will naturally expand to the region. Yeah. And what about people who are less familiar with networking or perhaps more sort of introverted? Is there any tips or anything you found that may, may inspire people to actually take that step to be proactive with networking? Yeah, I think the best thing for, say, those that are not familiar with networking is to set up calls or set up coffees as an informational um, interview, almost. Uh, Speak less and listen more. So when you're meeting with these people, just kind of pick their brain. Can you just tell me about your story? What would you recommend I do in my situation? Um, Who do you recommend I speak to after this? Uh, It doesn't need to be you talking. I think it's actually better for the other party to speak because more than often than not, when people speak more, they feel like the conversation went better than it did. That's a good place to start is just to listen more and to treat it like an informational interview. Yeah, I think that you can go quite far with that. Yeah, no, well well said. And I think the, the other thing that really fascinates me about your impressive background, not only have you worked for some of the world's best, you know, international law firms and, and particularly some really sort of global high hitting in-house opportunities in the legal space, you've always found time to sort of give back. And I know you founded the Global Lawyers of Canada. Um, do you want to tell us more about that organization and what that aims to achieve? Sure. So Global Lawyers Canada, I'm very proud of this organization because I co-founded it with uh, two others that are internationally trained lawyers as well. It started back in 2015 when I was just uh, undergoing my articling position, which is basically the Canadian equivalent of a training contract. Um, at that point in time, I had a few colleagues uh, that were internationally trained, so not Canadian uh, law school trained. And we just thought, you know, there's no support for us. There's no alumni base that we can lean back on. So how do we learn from each other? How do we even build a community? So that's when we kind of started building that out. Uh, it started in Calgary, which is, I don't know if you've uh, heard of Calgary. It's like an equivalent of our Houston, Texas, right? Uh, cowboys and whatnot. Um, but we started there. I've only heard of Calgary through all the movies that I've watched. I've never visited. So oh, right. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on point with where you're talking about, but never yet to visit. Yeah, and we had the Winter Olympics there years ago. So you yeah. know, that's what we're for. <laughs> but no, we, we started building that out slowly. Um, and basically, fast forward, uh, it's been five years. We are currently national in scope. We have um, chapters in Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, Saskatchewan as well. I think Saskatoon or Regina. And we're expanding to the East uh, Atlantic provinces as well. So I think it's great because one, we're uniting all kind of internationally trained lawyers in Canada, but two, it's providing us with a voice. So if the accreditation department in Canada is called the National Committee on Accreditation, Every time they have any policies that impact us, we're able to rally behind this national platform 
advocate for internationally trained lawyers across the country. And for me, it's just really important to have that community. So I'm very proud of that. Yeah, no, and it, it really is fantastic. So people should definitely check that out. And again, just going back to your Global Lawyers Connect interview, because it was fascinating, some of the stuff that you you mentioned there. It's a lot of the stuff that we at sort of Leading Thing Podcast and over at our own sort of HQ, Sim Car, really believe in. And that's actually fostering good relationships with recruiters or, or like, like I'd say, should be seen as trusted advisors and consultants. But tell us more about how your working with recruiters has benefited your career. Yeah, so I've always thought that recruiters should be treated as recruitment professionals and not just a medium where you kind of find a job posting and, and they help you apply because anyone can do that. The value of a, of a recruitment firm is that they're able to kind of sit down with you, understand your objectives and, and where you want to end up, not just in the near future, but like say five, 10 years down, right? As a junior, your next steps are very vital in where you want to end up, right? Uh, for me, I've worked with a few recruiters in Asia, and they're able to kind of stick with me throughout and kind of give me advice. They check up on me to say, hey, you've been here for two years. Where do you see yourself growing? Do you want to stay in Asia Pacific? Where else do you want to go? Can we help you? Right. I think that's fantastic because you treat it as a relationship. It's an ongoing relationship. Uh, and the more you invest in it, the better the returns. I've had bad experiences with recruiters that kind of just threw my application out there um, and just kind of shotgun uh, tactic. Um, and that actually was bad because it closed me off from some firms because they they only allow, say, like one application per year, right? But then I realized after speaking to another recruiter, they had a personal connection with this firm. But I missed my chance because someone else scattergunned you know, my application. So really important to vet your recruitment firms and um, your professionals there to see if they have any kind of personal connections. I just think it's it's a very important relationship to have. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, obviously, as, as naturally a recruiter, you know, day to day myself, I think it's so important that lawyers vet and test their particular advisor recruiter on their market knowledge, the level of their relationships, because like being a lawyer, if you've got good, high quality relationships, your clients are going to buy, trust and use you. And so I always say, if you have a recruiter that you can trust and get value from, they're worth their weight in gold, not just through your first move, but probably until you make it to partner or if you wish to become a general counsel or whatever. So you know, really foster those relationships and, and kind of give value to your recruiter as well as your recruiter giving value to you because that will help you in the long run. And kind of that leads again nicely on to generally around value and, and creating a lot of content because you um, you do do that and you provide mentoring for young lawyers as well. So what do you get back from doing that personally? So I've recently finished a book. I think it's a fantastic uh, book about basically the benefits of giving. So it's called Give and Take by Adam Grant. And in essence, it captures the essence of there's three types of people in the world, takers, givers, and matchers, right? Takers are the ones that are believe in the world in a, as a zero-sum game. It has to be winner and loser. Matchers are those that say, like, if I give you something, I need something in return, a tit for tat. And givers are the ones that are a bit selfless in that they give without the expectation of receiving anything. Just the fact that giving is enough. But I think most people assume that, you know, givers are going to be trampled over and taken advantage of. And I think some do. But if you look at, say, the Warren Buffetts of the world, the, the richest people in the world, the most influential, majority of them are actually givers. So for me, creating content and providing a mentorship where I can, naturally, I am a giver. I gain from helping others. And I think that it's fantastic if those that get something from me will pass it forward and pay it forward. And I think if we all kind of operate with this kind of mindset, it just becomes everyone becomes a mentor to everyone. 
I think that's how it should be, especially for junior lawyers coming up now, and especially for law students, a lot of the back schemes have been canceled and whatnot. They need mentors more than ever, right? And if I was in their situation, I would want mentors as well. So why wouldn't we, you know, after having, you know, slight success to kind of pay forward and help out as well? And that's a really good point on mentoring. And I, I obviously mentor a lot of people myself. And one thing to my own personal sort of seeking mentors is, is the 360 mentorship is, uh, is one thing, because everyone typically thinks I need to go and find a mentor who's got more experience, know stuff about. But actually, if someone's, you know, regardless of their age, demographic, whatever it might be, if they've got a skill set or knowledge or something in that area and they're happy to add value to you, you know, look at it from a 360 mentorship. You don't just need to have, you know, senior partners, partners of law firms as potential mentors or, or other people. Actually look around you in your network. And if you see people doing good things that can potentially help and build your profile as a lawyer or whatever you choose to be, then have that kind of 360 mindset of, of, of mentoring. That's one thing that's really important to me because I think you can always learn from the next generation as well as the current and kind of you know, generation that's been there and done that. But I really like what you're doing. I think the content is fantastic. So please do keep it up. And I know a lot of our listeners will be be sort of checking that out after this podcast as, as, as well. And look, I understand you also have a keen interest in technology, which is fascinating for me because I think the legal sector is still far behind. But, you know, I think it's, it's, it's hopefully going to come a bit further forward. So last year, you wrote for the Canadian lawyer about the benefits of uh, being a kind of technology competent lawyer. How do you think tech is changing in the legal space and what can lawyers do to embrace it? So I am an advocate of being technologically aware. Right. I'm not saying I'm not advocating that everyone needs to learn how to code. Um, I think that's that's not the best use of our time as lawyers or law students. But you should be aware of what developments that are going on right now, especially, say, with legal tech, with fintech, and also with reg tech, right? Legal tech, especially, it's, it's a growing area, but it's nowhere near revolutionary as some people say it is. Not right now, because with any kind of technology within the legal sphere, it's, it has to be client-driven. If clients are not asking it, if there's no cost reduction benefit out of it, I don't think the law firms will be adopting it substantially anyways. So I, I do think that law students, junior lawyers, all lawyers, I think, should be aware of the developments that are going on right now and how we're going to shape our practice later on in the future. So say, you know, like uh, traditionally uh, corporate lawyers would have to look at capitalization tables on Excel. There are companies like Carta that are online based that deal with capitalization tables that are able to update real time uh, based on your financing rounds, ESOPs and whatnot. So Little tweaks like these, little programs or apps like this are able to help you as a lawyer perform better. If you're not aware of how to access an app or you know, familiarity with platforms in general, you're going to be left back when millennial lawyers come up and they're all familiar with this stuff. So I, I think it's just beneficial for everyone. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, it's, it's the future. So it, it is time to you know, embrace and not ignore, because ultimately that's where it's going, whether you like it or not, and, and unfortunately, but I'm a, I'm a big advocate and I can't wait to see the shakeups in terms of legal tech moving, moving forwards. And I guess moving on to then kind of aspirational lawyers generally, what advice would you give to them or your, your sort of top couple of tips? I think one top tip is to uh, manage expectations in terms of the legal career. I think gone are the days where, you know, like getting a law degree is a sure way of, of securing your partnership track, right? Uh, nowadays, I know so many lawyers, you know, half of them are not even practicing, right? And, and half of them are maybe practicing, but are maybe not enjoying it, or maybe they want to pivot into a business career. So I think 
for lawyers coming up is just to manage expectations, understand that qualifying is a nice to have, but it's not a, that's not all you can do with a law degree, right? You can eventually go in-house. You can do a quasi kind of legal and business role. You can even later on when legal tech blows up, you can be a legal technologist, right? There are many avenues that you can pursue that do not end up being a partner, right? Obviously, if you want to be a partner, by all means, go for it. But there are other avenues. And I think the fact that law students think that there's only one path really stresses them out. Um, I just want to kind of give that advice that there are a lot of opportunities out there to use a law degree, use your legal skills, and to make money as well. I don't think uh, you need to worry about only qualifying. Yeah, no, and I think, like you said, there's more and more new opportunities and strands and and, and things. You mentioned sort of legal technologists and things like that. That's going to be very much the future. So I'm in full agreement with you on that. So, and you know, it's exciting times ahead. But you know, it can't all be work. So, you know, as we sort of look to try and wrap up, what do you do for downtime? You know, you've, you've lived and worked in some of those amazing countries, but yeah, what do you tend to do for, for downtime? Yeah, you know what? Uh, the benefit of being in Asia is the travel, right? You can do a weekend trip to Bangkok, weekend trip to Bali. I love to travel. My wife and I, you know, if we can go every two months, we do that. We um, travel quite often, obviously less so with COVID right now, but uh, when it opens up, we're happily uh, jumping back on that. Uh, onto that uh, wagon. Another thing I do a lot is actually I like to work out, but in terms of variety workouts, so calisthenics, uh, weights, and whatnot, it helps with stress because in this career, you're going to be stressed. You're going to need an outlet, right? So I use weight training uh, as, a, as an outlet. I swim as well. I go on hikes. I run. Anything to stay physically active. And for me, once you stay physically active and healthy, it gives you more an opportunity to kind of perform better uh, intellectually into your own work as well, because you're not physically drained, right? You can go for longer, you can last longer. So it's kind of like beneficial on both ends. Yeah, no. And, you know, it's as cliche as it may sound, but a healthy body, healthy mind and, and looking after yourself right. and, you know, investing in health and wellness. Um, you know, it is a stressful career being a lawyer. Let's, let's not dispute that, but it's equally very rewarding. So you do need to take a look after self-care. Um, really, really important. And I would say it sounds rubbish what you do for downtime, you know, just popping over to Bangkok, Bali, casually dropping that in there. <laughs> Super jealous as I sit here in lockdown uh, in London. But no, it sounds awesome. And, and listen, Daniel, I'm a massive fan of what you're doing. I think you're a massive advocate for really inspiring people to have that international growth mindset as, as legal professionals. Because I do feel, you know, as a result of COVID-19 generally, the whole world is hopefully slightly becoming you know, more connected in terms of the platforms available like LinkedIn and Global Lawyers Connect and all these various things out there. People can really get lots of knowledge, help themselves and, and really kind of self-develop and on top of all the other stuff they're doing. So thank you so much for, for kind of coming on and, and sharing your story and educating our listeners. If people do want to follow you or get in touch um, or, or around anything we've discussed today, what's the best way and platform for them to do that? LinkedIn. There we have it. I'm a big advocate of LinkedIn, as all the listeners know. So LinkedIn's the one and it will continue to be the one. So Daniel, thank you so, so much once again. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed following your journey and will continue to follow your journey with great interest. It's truly inspiring. Wishing you tons and tons of success and we'll no doubt see you on the show again at some point in the future. Yo, thank you so much, Rob. Uh, fantastic podcast and uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, helping any other junior lawyers out there or any law students. Great stuff. Cheers. Cheers.